Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, continuing our ongoing conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Well, we've had a very exciting day in the podcast studio. As you probably know, there are important people who work behind the scenes to make this podcast happen each week. Eric is responsible for part of that, but the producer who puts the material together for us is Courtney. And she just walked in the studio and showed me her engagement ring. So we are really excited about that. So if you're out there listening to the podcast, uh, just say a prayer of thanks for Eric and Courtney for the hard work they do and prayer for blessing on Courtney as she starts working out wedding details in the months to come. You know, it's always important to uh, think about and express gratitude to people who serve you and serve with you and who make you successful. And I'm really grateful for Courtney and Eric and others here at Gateway who make this podcast possible. Well, over the past several months, I've been teaching some material to pastors in various contexts on maintaining spiritual vitality during ministry chaos. And we are certainly living through chaotic times right now in ministry leadership. There's so much going on in the culture. So many things happening to us uh, all the time, it seems like, that are out of our control, beyond our ability to influence, and yet have a continuing impact on us as ministry leaders. Well, the podcast today is not about responding to all of that. Instead, the podcast is about how do you maintain your spiritual focus in that context. And I want to just lift out one little slice of this presentation I've been making around the country and talk about it today as a way to help you crystallize what it means to build your spiritual vitality during chaotic ministry times. I want to talk today on the podcast about self-care, what it is, how to do it, why it's important, and I want to begin by contrasting self-care with self-indulgence and talk about how I first started thinking about this topic. The first time I ever heard anyone teach on self-care, I reacted very negatively. Now, if you know me well, that shouldn't surprise you. One of my spiritual gifts is the gift of criticism, and I am very eager to point out the flaws in various things that are presented to me. So as this person was presenting about self-care, I found myself reacting quite negatively. But as I listened more and then did some of my own Bible study and reflection, I came to understand that self-care is actually a valuable uh, expression and a valuable practice for ministry leaders. Now, the first thing I want to do is to define self-care. These are activities that rejuvenate our spiritual, emotional, and physical stamina for leadership. Let me say that again. Self-care are activities that rejuvenate our spiritual, emotional, our physical stamina for leadership. Now, I want to contrast that with self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is activities to pamper or pander to our self-focused or selfish desires. Now, when I first heard self-care talked about, the words self-care were being spoken, but they were coming through the filter into my mind of self-indulgence. 
So while the person speaking was talking about self-care, I was hearing a message about self-indulgence. I had to get that corrected in my own mind and in my own perspective. The speaker was actually talking about self-care, about activities that rejuvenate us spiritually, emotional, and physically. Not self-indulgence, activities that pamper or pander to our self-focused desires or our selfishness. Now, to put it another way, self-care is taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. Self-indulgence is taking care of yourself as an end in and of itself so that you are the recipient of and the object of this self-focused care. But self-care is different. It's about taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. It's about taking care of yourself so that you can continue to provide ministry to others over the long haul. Now, as most of you know, I fly quite a bit in my work, and I've learned to tune out the safety announcement at the beginning of every flight. However, the other day I dialed in and listened as the presentation was made and discovered on that airplane from that flight attendant the perfect example of the difference between self-care and self-indulgence and an example of how important self-care really is. The flight attendant said, if we reach a circumstance which causes the oxygen masks to drop out of the ceiling, she said, put on your own oxygen mask first before you help anyone else, before you help an aging relative, before you help a helpless child, before you help anyone else, she said, help yourself. Now, the reason she was giving that instruction was not because she wanted all of us to be selfish pigs who wanted everyone else on the airplane to die. No. She said, put on your own oxygen mask first so that you can then help others around you who need assistance to survive. This is a perfect example of self-care. Take care of yourself first, not because you're selfish and don't care about the people around you, but because if you don't take care of yourself first, you're not going to be able to take care of anyone else around you. Putting on your own oxygen mask first is not an example of self-indulgence. It's an act of self-care because it will rejuvenate you physically so that you can meet the needs of others. So self-care is good. Self-care for ministry leaders is actually essential. And self-care is not about self-indulgence. It's about taking care of ourselves so that we can meet the needs of, take care of, extend ourselves on behalf of others who have real needs. Now, another fair question is, are there examples of self-care in the Bible and particularly in the life of Jesus? And of course, the answer is yes. Jesus, for example, uh, retreated for prayer. 
In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Matthew 14, 22 and 23, Luke 6, 12 through 13, in all of these passages, there are descriptions of Jesus pulling away from other people, going to a place of prayer, and devoting himself to spiritual rejuvenation in private time with God. Jesus ate and slept, Luke 7, 34, Mark 4, 38, just two examples. When Jesus ate, he did so to replenish his body and give himself the strength he needed to go on. And when he slept, he was doing the very same thing. Jesus, who had this incredible supernatural capacity to heal others, rested his own body to maintain his his health and stamina as he moved along through ministry. Jesus, who had the incredible capacity to turn a few loaves and fishes into the food for 5,000, still took time to sit down and eat meals in order to sustain himself, nourish himself physically. So Jesus took care of himself spiritually by going away for intense times of prayer, and he took care of himself physically by eating and sleeping and even resting to recover physical strength. You can see this in John 4, 6, or Matthew 8, 24, examples of Jesus pulling aside and either sitting or resting or sleeping in order to rejuvenate himself physically. And then Jesus also enjoyed being with people. He enjoyed social gatherings with friends like Matthew 9, verses 10 and 11. These stories in the Bible where Jesus went to dinner parties or went to weddings or went to uh, funerals and other places like this, we tend to focus on what happened in the story and the application of it, and that's not inappropriate. That's part of the preaching and teaching those stories well. But we sometimes miss the obvious, and that is Jesus went there. He went to dinner parties. He went to weddings. He went to funerals. Uh, Jesus liked being with people. He didn't come to go it alone. He got three disciples around him very closely and nine more in a second circle, and then he appointed 70 more to be involved in his ministry team and take his message all around. Jesus liked people, and over and over in the Bible, we see him encountering different people in social contexts. Now, We've learned so far that self-care is about rejuvenating yourself. It's not self-indulgent. That does, that's pampering yourself. And we've learned that Jesus models these things for us. But now, let's raise another important question, and that is, does self-care preclude sacrifice? Or does self-care include sacrifice? Well, my conviction from both the teaching and the examples throughout Scripture, is that self-care does include sacrifice. But I'll say it this way. Self-care includes seasons of sacrifice. Now, by seasons of sacrifice, I mean periods of surging drain, surging investment, surging expending of leadership resources, energy, all of that. Seasonal surges of sacrifice are part of ministry leadership, and they are part of happening in the context of self-care. Now, it's really interesting about what constitutes a sacrifice in ministry leadership. 
This is hard to quantify and to describe because sacrifice is both personal and proportional. What I mean by that is sacrifice is something that you feel as a sacrifice, not what others around you see as a sacrifice. Sacrifice is proportional in the sense of what it costs you and your perception of that cost, not what others may appraise that it costs or even observe that it costs. Sacrifice is both personal and proportional. So these seasons of sacrifice that come along in our lives may be intensely personal. No one else around you may fully understand what it's costing you in the moment, what you're going through in a particular experience, or how much something is taking out of you in order to fulfill the ministry that God has assigned. So self-care, yes, it doesn't preclude sacrifice. It includes sacrifice. And it's important for us to understand that we're only going to be able to appraise sacrifice ourselves, not because of what others say about us or because of what others may think about us, but as we appraise it ourselves because of what we're going through personally and proportionally. Let me illustrate it for you with a story. When we moved from the Midwest to Portland, Oregon, the women of our church at that time thought my wife had lost her mind. They were commiserating with her with tears that she was having to leave the comfort of our Midwestern home and the ease and support of the church where we were serving to move across the country and start over with a couple of families in a middle school gymnasium in this God-forsaken, awful place far away from anything that was reasonable, Portland, Oregon. Now, that was the perspective of many of the women in our church. And my wife was a bit taken aback by this, by the emotion that was being demonstrated and the pain and the grief and the heartache that was being shown. And Anne, as she later told me, tried to keep a straight face. You see, when we decided to move to Oregon, my wife was gleeful for two reasons. One, when she was 12 years old, she had committed herself to missions and I had finally caught up to the pace and was ready to go. And two, my wife comes from a relatively small family, but two of the most dynamic Christians in our family were my wife's aunt and uncle who lived, guess where? Portland, Oregon. So we are moving to a place that fulfills a lifelong dream that my wife has had since she was 12 years old, serving in a missional context and planting something new that had never existed before. And secondarily, we're getting to do that in a place where she's actually moving closer to some of the most devoted Christians in her extended family. So moving from the Midwest to Oregon wasn't a sacrifice at all. Even though everyone around my wife thought it was a great sacrifice, She had a hard time keeping a straight face because she was so excited about the opportunity. Now let's fast forward. Anne told me this story uh, a few years ago that brings in contrast to the first one and establishes the principle I'm trying to teach you. When the seminary relocated from the Bay Area down here to Southern California, my wife really struggled with the move, not because of anything related to the seminary. 
She knew the seminary needed to move. She was fully on board with that decision. She was supportive of me in every way imaginable, for which I'm grateful. But it was still an incredibly difficult, emotionally draining, sacrificial time for her because she was giving up something she loved. You see, my wife was the preschool and children's ministry director at First Baptist Church, San Francisco, California, a church that my wife once told me was her favorite church she'd ever been a member of in her lifetime. I did remind her that I planted one of the churches in her history that she was now comparing this one to, and she smiled and said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, but you're still my favorite preacher. Yeah, well, nevertheless, my wife's favorite church of all time was First Baptist Church San Francisco, and it was there that she had some of the most enriching ministry that she's ever accomplished in her lifetime. And when the seminary relocated, that was taken away from her. And quite frankly, it was a sacrifice. It was a painful, difficult, hard-to-process experience where she had to give up something that was dear to her heart. So when she made the move from the Midwest to Portland, everyone else thought it was a sacrifice, but she didn't think so because why? Sacrifice is personal and proportional. But when we moved from the Bay Area down to Southern California, everyone was so excited about the move and the possibilities and all that was going to happen for us here in Southern California. But Anne was hurting because for her, this move was a sacrifice because personally and proportionally, it was costing her deeply. So when I talk to you about self-care, including sacrifice, you can't let anyone else define for you what that means or what that looks like. Because what might look like a sacrifice to many other people on the outside observing your life from the inside may not be that difficult at all. But on the other hand, you may be asked to give up something something tangible, some location, some relationship, some privilege, some opportunity. You may be asked to give up something in the context of the surging demands of ministry, which is a real sacrifice. It's a part of the responsibility we have and the lifestyle God has given us as ministry leaders. So here's what we've learned so far. Self-care is vital. It's not self-indulgence. Self-care is about taking care of ourselves so that we can minister to and meet the needs of others. Jesus modeled it. It's not without sacrifice involved in it from time to time. It's a season of sacrifice, however, not a perpetual running the meter all the way to the highest setting and burning yourself out because of that. No, that's not a season of sacrifice. That's a life of perfectionistic workaholism. That's a different thing. So self-care can include seasons of sacrifice, and we want to recognize that. And when those happen, not be upset about it, not complain about it, not say it's not fair, and definitely not say that we're not going to do it because that's not balanced. No, we're going to surge when we have to and give that kind of energy, effort, and, and sacrifice necessary in the moment at hand. 
Now, let's close out the podcast today on self-care by talking about three key areas where we practice self-care and just a few ideas about how to do that more effectively. First of all, self-care involves spiritual rejuvenation. And there are really two emphases I want to place on how to do that today. First, practice your spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. Those are at the very core of what it means to practice spiritual self-care. That means that you're in the regular habit. I prefer mornings myself, but you're in the regular habit of getting alone with God, reading his word, asking him to speak to you, and then spending time praying over what you're reading and particularly praying about your personal needs and the issues that are raised by your scripture reading for that particular day. You know, for example, this morning I read 1 Peter chapter 2. And in that passage, it has some instructions about slavery. And I found myself bowing my head and confessing again our national sin of slavery and what it's done to our country for all these decades and asking God to give me a deep passion for overcoming injustice in our world today. And then I read on in that passage about the importance of serving and serving well, even when it's costly and when you're even perhaps punished for service and unfairly and punished unfairly. That was this morning's reading. And as I read the Bible and reflected on what it had to say and prayed over it, I felt myself uh, rekindled in my relationship with God, brought closer to him by encountering him in his word and having a few minutes to talk with God about something that was personal and real in my life. And then, of course, also in prayer time, praying for my wife today and praying for my children and grandchildren, just talking to God about the people that are closest to me and, and closest on my heart rejuvenates me spiritually before God. So spiritual rejuvenation begins with personal spiritual devotions and spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying. Now you say, well, what about other spiritual disciplines like scripture memory and fasting and journaling? All of those things are good, and I'm not saying you shouldn't also do all of those things, but I have a hard time doing all of those things every day. But I've discovered that I can read the Bible and pray most days, and that by doing so, I maintain a consistent amount of self-care in my life spiritually. Now, another part of this is worship. Now, for many of you listening to the podcast, you're worship leaders, and I understand that. But I want to challenge you that part of your spiritual self-care is finding ways to engage in worship where you sing, pray, read Scripture, and have the Word of God declared to you when your mind is not divided in the moment by thinking about what happens next or what ministry you're supposed to provide or when you're supposed to be doing something again in leadership. I do this by going into conference sessions where I'm speaking, particularly the sessions when I'm not the speaker, and participating in the music, listening to the praying, hearing some of the sermons. I'm not able to do this every single time I travel and speak, but I do it from time to time. I do it as often as I can so that I can have a worship experience where I'm not the leader and God and I have an opportunity for a more personal encounter. So self-care, spiritual rejuvenation through spiritual disciplines, 
and through corporate worship. These are ways that you can take care of yourself spiritually as a leader. Then second, you have physical rejuvenation. Just like Jesus ate and slept and rested and did those things, you have to do the same thing. You have to discipline yourself to eat appropriately and sleep when you need to and exercise, yes, exercise as a part of your lifestyle. And then, of course, taking Sabbath rest as a kind of a capstone of doing all those three things. Now, I have spent entire podcasts on the issue of rest, and if you've not heard one of those, you can go back in the podcast log and find the podcast on rest and listen to them. So I won't go over all that again today, but I would just simply say that taking care of yourself physically is about eating and sleeping and exercising and resting appropriately so that you maintain the physical stamina you need to do ministry. You know, it does take stamina to do the work that we have been assigned. It takes stamina for preaching, takes stamina for teaching. It takes stamina to maintain the pace of organizational planning and organizational life. And as you uh, involve yourself in ministry leadership, it seems like a lot of the things that we uh, have as a part of our work style really mitigates against taking care of ourselves physically. For example, you know, we go to a lot of banquets, we go to a lot of meals, we get to potlucks, people are always handing us a treat or a cup of sweetened drink or something like that. And then we, we spend a lot of time just sitting. We're sitting in our desks, studying and reading and preparing, and we sit in Bible studies and we sit in cars on the way to visitations and we sit in meetings when we attend things like uh, conferences and conferences and seminars. There's a lot of our lives that's really sedentary. So we, we're, 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 we're mitigated against uh, self-care by what we eat and, 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 uh, and how we behave or act physically. And, and then this whole issue of, of sleeping, my, so many people have such erratic sleep schedules and sl- such erratic uh, behavior that it's almost like insomnia. And so it's, it takes discipline to establish a pattern of sleeping and going to sleep at a certain time or within reasonable distance of a certain time. And man, especially if you have young children, you have kids, teenagers that are, you know, going out with their friends and you're up at this hour and that hour and having to take this and do that. It is very challenging. But just because it's challenging doesn't mean it's not important that you do these things. You've got to discipline yourself to eat well and get some exercise and sleep when you're supposed to. And whatever's mitigating against these things as part of your leadership work style, you've got to stand against those issues and take care of yourself physically. And then, of course, as I said, you have to rest. You've got to rest one day out of seven. You need a couple or three periodic rest breaks through the year. You need rest. And it's not rest as a vacation or rest as a sabbatical or rest because you're not going to do anything and you deserve time off because you've worked hard and you've earned it. No, it's none of that. It's rest for the purpose of rebuilding yourself so you can go right back into the fray and stay actively engaged as a ministry leader. So self-care requires spiritual rejuvenation. And it requires physical rejuvenation. And then finally, it requires what I'll call emotional or relational or social rejuvenation. As I mentioned already, Jesus liked being with people. He was always going places with people and especially the people that were closest to him. He really seemed to enjoy those relationships. Do you? Do you have a cadre of people right around you that energize you? A few years ago, a fellow wrote a book and he said there were VIPs. VEPs and VDPs. 
VIPs are very inspiring people and VEPs are very encouraging people. And he said, you got to surround yourself with both those folks. And then he said, the VDPs are the very draining people and in ministry leadership, they will find you. You can't avoid them, but you can limit their impact by making sure that you're balancing these draining people out with the inspiring and encouraging people you need in your life. Now, I've talked about this also on another podcast, so I'll just briefly mention it today, and that is you need a friendship team if you're a ministry leader, which consists of four people. You won't have all four of these people all the time, and they don't all have the same intensity all the time, but these are the four wells of relationship, if you will, that you want to draw from as you build a team of people around you to support you in ministry leadership. First, you need a mentor. That's someone you can go to, get some counsel, advice, or guidance, someone who's been in ministry longer than you, that you look up to and respect and has wisdom. Second, you need a colleague. That's a person you work with. can be a staff member, a deacon, an elder, a partner in ministry, someone who's got their, uh, their, their, their neck in the yoke with you, with you and you're double yoked and you're pulling together and you're trying to get the work done. You need a colleague, somebody that just shares what you're going through that'll stand with you and you can stand with them and the two of you will make it through together. Then the third group is, the, is a ministry peer. Now, a peer is different than a colleague in that they don't share the emotional burden you share for the work you do. If you're a pastor, a peer is a pastor in a different church, a youth pastor, a youth pastor in a different church. Uh, If you're a president like me, it's a president in a different organization. And so you find someone who understands your world, but isn't in it every day like a colleague, that's a ministry peer. And then finally, you need what I call an everyday friend. An everyday friend, that's someone who's not a mentor, Not a colleague, not a peer, just a man or a woman, a a, a person, same gender, similar interest, profound connection, and over the years, a friendship is nurtured, and that everyday friend becomes someone that you go fishing with, go out for coffee, get on the phone and laugh about funny stories or funny things that have happened in life, swap grandkid stories, you know what I'm talking about. I've been blessed in my life. I've had two or three of these men that have lasted with me now for some some of them 30, 40 years. You don't have a lot of these in your life, but if you're if you just have a few, you're a much blessed person. So, self-care involves relational or social or emotional rejuvenation by plugging ourselves into the very inspiring and very encouraging people like mentors and colleagues and peers and everyday friends who keep us going in ministry leadership. Well, today on the podcast, we've talked about self-care. It's essential for ministry leaders. It's not self-indulgence. It's not pandering or pampering to yourself. Self-care is about spiritual, emotional, physical rejuvenation, rejuvenation, re-energizing yourself. For what purpose? So you can go back into leadership and maintain effective longevity in your leadership responsibilities. When I first heard this concept taught, I reacted negatively. I hope you have had a much more positive impression today as you learn to practice self-care while you lead on.